This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Beta, and also uh, The Life of Yogananda, uh, our show, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Ian Johnson. Ian is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer focusing on society, religion, and history. He works out of Beijing, where he also teaches undergraduate classes. Uh, very happy to have you on today, Ian. Uh, your latest book, uh, Images of the Souls of China. Uh, thank you so very much. Thanks. Yeah, appreciate being on the show. Um, Ian, do we have to correct that title? It's, um, the, it's just The Souls of China. The Souls of okay. China. Yeah, it's okay. The Souls I, of China. The Return of Religion After Mao. I'm very eager to, to discuss this with you. It sounds like a fascinating uh, account of uh, an extraordinary moment in history in, in China. Uh, maybe we could begin with a little of your background. Uh, you've you cover a lot of uh, about the intersection of religion and uh, culture and politics, um, and a lot of, of your work has been in China. Uh, how did you come to that particular uh, interest and and what came first, your your uh, fascination with China or with religion? Well, I guess with religion. I grew up in a, a fairly religious household. Uh, I grew up in, in Montreal, Canada, and an Anglican household, Church of England. And my mother and father were very active in the church. And I did all the usual stuff, like being an altar boy and all that stuff. And uh I, I, when I went to China for the first time in in '84, after we after living in Canada, we moved to the United States when I was in high school, and I naturalized as a U.S. citizen. Anyway, so I went to to China in 1984, and I was just interested in the religious life there. I wondered what what do people believe in here? I didn't expect that they would have similar beliefs to mine, but I was just curious. You know, of course, I'd read uh, the Tao Te Ching, the, the Taoist classic, and I'd read the Analects of Confucius and some Buddhist sutras, but I, these are all ancient books, and I wondered what was left of Chinese religion when I went back, and you know, back then, it didn't seem like very much was left. It was all kind of... Um, it was had been largely destroyed in the Cultural Revolution and in the, the Mao period, so... Um, that was my, my introduction to Chinese religion. It was mainly uh, intellectual curiosity, just um, coming from that sort of a household that I grew up in. Yeah, Ian, I wanted to ask you, was there a specific time or decision made by the Chinese government where religion, where spiritual activities uh, became allowed? And were they fully allowed? I, I know you've written, and there was a lot uh, uh, talked about the, the Falun Gong. I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly, but certain mm -hmm. religious or spiritual groups that were outlawed, did it completely open up suddenly, or, or did it open up in a limited way? No, I, I think, well, what happened when the, the communists took power in 1949, after China's civil war, they won it, obviously, and then uh, in the Mao period, which lasted, lasted roughly 30 years until he died in 1976, uh, religion was increasingly banned essentially and by by the by the end of it it had been completely banned and, and replaced by this cult of mao and after he died the party loosened up again and began to allow the five official religious groups in china to reform and come back again and those five groups are uh, buddhism taoism islam protestant christianity and catholic 
Christianity. So those five groups um, were allowed to come back. But the government has always, and even today, continues to reserve the right to decide what group is legal and what group is illegal. So in theory, for example, Hinduism or Judaism are not legal religions in China. Hmm. Um, in practice, the government turns a blind eye and for foreigners uh, who are Jewish or, or Hindu, they, they, they don't really care if you, if you worship. But um, those other five groups are the only ones that are legally allowed to have places of worship, to have seminaries, to train clergy, uh, and that sort of thing. And that's, that's been the case since 1949 and, and remains the case today. But I think the government has increasingly been a little more flexible in, in its approach, despite all the reports that we hear about crackdowns. And they are real. And you mentioned Falun Gong, and that was a huge crackdown in about 1999, 2000, when this um, sect that was a, a mixture of Buddhism and Taoism and folk religious practices, when it was banned by the government. Interesting. Um, in about 25 years ago or so, if I'm remembering correctly, I knew a uh, Chinese acupuncturist in L.A. who had uh, come from Shanghai not too long before. And I remember him essentially smuggling in when he would go back to China. He would smuggle in uh, what the... Uh, instruments and the, uh, the paraphernalia necessary to do uh, Tibetan Buddhist practices, and he would gather groups um, surreptitiously and at considerable risk. Um, that was a Tibetan Buddhist uh, uh, practice he had, and we know the history of China and Tibet. Would he be able to openly uh, conduct those rituals now in China? Well, Tibetan Buddhism is, is allowed in uh, China, but the main thing that the government doesn't like, be it religious groups or any other kind of groups, NGOs, etc., is uh, any sort of foreign influence. And they're very worried about that in, in religion. Mm -hmm. And of course, as we can quickly think, all almost all religions have a foreign component. Buddhism has Tibetan Buddhism. Islam has the global ummah of all Muslim people around the world, or the pilgrimage to Mecca, for example. Uh, Catholicism is headquartered in Rome, which yeah, is obviously yeah. a foreign country. Protestantism, there's a global Protestant movement that uh, is quite active in evangelizing and so on and so forth. So all these religions have a foreign component, and the government is nervous about that. So your friend probably smuggled the stuff in because as a foreigner, I guess it was a foreigner, right? Um, no, well, he was Chinese, but he was living Chinese. in America. Living in America, yeah, maybe there was a lack of of the books or statues or whatever else he needed at the time. I tend to think you can buy that now in China. Mm -hmm. I, I, here, you'd have to check with your friends in this specifically. Yeah. But uh, I think overall, bringing stuff into China is um, is always a risky proposition, whether it's in your suitcase or whether you're trying to wire money in or somehow get mm -hmm. it. Right. Uh, Ian, would, would the uh, da Dalai Lama... Uh, would he ever, you think, be allowed to come back to his home? And if not, why not? What is their biggest fear with him? Yeah, I think the the Dalai Lama has proposed many things over the years, and I think tried to meet them more than halfway. 
But I don't think the government wants him back. I don't think they see any upside from their point of view. Um, to put it bluntly, I think they're waiting for him to die. And when he dies, they will appoint another Dalai Lama who will be, you know, they're reincarnated and they're found a few years after the person dies, normally in a small child. Um, and that person will be found inside the borders of the People's Republic of China, uh, just as exactly was the case with the Panchen Lama when he died. And they will not allow that person to leave. Now, I, I suspect the exile community will find its own Dalai Lama outside the borders of the PRC or smuggle somebody outside and that they will raise that person in India in the exile community. And there will probably be two Dalai Lamas just as there are two Panchen Lamas today. And this will exacerbate the tragic situation of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. But that's my sort of pessimistic... Uh, <laughs> let, let, let me just follow up on that. <clears throat> so the, the, the Dalai Lama that would reside in mainland China and not be allowed to leave uh, would they allow him to operate as uh, a, a Dalai Lama would uh, operate? Yeah, no, I think they would allow that person to carry out all the ceremonies and, and, and so on and so forth. But you'd have to remember that this child would probably be found around the age of five or maybe even a bit younger. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, three to five years old, let's say, and then be raised um, and essentially... I, you know, I hate to use these sort of words, but like brainwashed. I mean, the person we raised inside China and in a Chinese in, environment, tightly controlled, just like the Panchen Lama, the young Panchen Lama who was found, it uh, must be already 20 years ago now. Uh, he's a young man. He doesn't make very many public appearances, very carefully stage managed. And um, I think you find the same thing with the new Dalai, I know whether the person, as they get older, they realize what's happened, they grow into the role, they try to push for more autonomy. You know, I don't know. That that that, that could happen. Mm. But um, I think the government will do everything possible to to control that situation because they, they want to keep firm control over Tibet. It's an important strategic part of China. The population is not big. We're just talking about a few million people. But... Um, but it's important strategically, and they will not allow a politically independent Dalai Lama to operate or to have some sort of moral authority even. Uh, in, in the uh, Mao era, before the uh, liberalization that you write about in um, the new book, um, the, uh, is it safe to say that uh, a lot of the traditional religious uh, uh, practices of Taoism and Buddhism and Confucianism were practiced or underground. Were there like I know that happened in the Soviet Union. There was a lot of uh, banned religious activity going on underground at, at considerable risk. Did, did was that the case in China as well? Uh, yes. Um, so when we say religion was banned, I think you're right in saying it was it was really the public practice of religion that was banned uh -huh. in the hardcore communist era under Mao, because people, of, of course, they they uh, buried statues, they buried classics, books, ritual manuals that are necessary for ceremonies, essentially. Um, and the same with Christianity. Uh, Christianity went underground, and that's really when the underground Catholic and Protestant churches were formed um, because the institutional churches, the government-run churches, as well as the government-run temples and so on, they were all closed. So mm -hmm. anybody with a religious bent was almost forced to 
to worship on their own. And then the government's had a hard time since then in reestablishing the authority of the state-run religious groups. Ian, is the uh, Falun Gong, are they operating now or are they still totally banned? They're totally banned, but they're still operating, from what I understand, in a very low-grade uh, way. Um, I mean, people worshiping privately at home and so on and so forth. You don't have the public protests anymore right. that you had. What, what, back, what uh, was it about that group that particularly uh, triggered a government response? Well, the immediate cause was, um, this was in, in April 2001, they staged a sit-down strike right in front of the Communist Party, the headquarters, um, in downtown Beijing, and several thousand people sat down, uh, cross-legged, sort of meditating. And when Zhu Rongji, the premier of China at the time, <laughs> woke up, you know, yeah. to go and get his copy of People's Daily out front or whatever, uh, lo and behold, there are all these people protesting. And so they, they responded with this uh, draconian crackdown. I think that that was the immediate uh, cause. Probably it would have happened anyway, because... Falun Gong was getting more and more organized. And the one thing the government doesn't like about religious groups is any kind of organization. So I think they would have probably banned them anyway. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, Ian, um, I was, I'm curious about one thing you said earlier uh, when you talked about which uh, religious traditions are legal and which are not in, in uh, China. You said that Hinduism and Judaism are not legal. Um, mm -hmm. Is there any rationale for that? I mean, I've, maybe you, it's kind of understandable with uh, India on China's border and along, you know, the uh, tension between the countries, but why Judaism? And, and really, why, why, either, why either or why both? Yeah. Well, it's not just Judaism. I mean, it's also Baha'i or uh, you can think of any other sort of Zoroastrianism or whatever. Uh, but no, I think it's just that the government decided, this was, so it goes back even before the communists took power in the early 20th century, when before that, in the traditional era, let's say, quote-unquote traditional era, before the, uh, say, the middle of the 19th century, um, religion was just something that people practiced and did. And the, the term religion was imported from the West. Uh, there wasn't a, ter obviously people practiced religion, but they right. um, didn't have a term in the sociological sense that we have today for, for something that you do that's sort of separate from other things in your life, maybe on a fixed day of the week at a certain place. Back then in traditional society, religion was just something you did. And 99% of the population was in a mixture of Buddhist, Buddhism, Taoism, folk religious practices, and so on and so forth. And then there were very small numbers of monotheistic faiths, um, mm -hmm. Islam and Christianity. So when the modern state began to form in the early 20th century, the Republic of China, they tried to organize religion. They said, okay, well, what religious groups do we have here in China? Okay, we've got Buddhism, we've got Taoism, we have Islam, we have Catholics, we have Protestants. And that became the five official faiths in the 1920s and 30s. And the communists, when they took over in 49, they essentially just continued on with that policy. Uh, and for all intents and purposes, there were no Jews and there were no Hindus in China at the time. Although, you know, there had been small groups of people uh, off and on over the years, but not very many. There were also Orthodox Christians, for example, mm. from Russia, but they didn't count. And so they, they ended up with these five groups. And I think now 
why don't they just open it up a little bit? I think they feel that it's a, a bit of a Pandora's box. If they mm-hmm. allow these groups in, well, then what about Falun Gong? Why can't they be allowed? Why couldn't they allow other folk religious groups or syncretic uh, faiths? So instead, they've just said, okay, we're going to keep the five re- official religious groups. If there are foreigners who want to celebrate uh, the Valley or, or Passover or something, okay, you can go ahead and do that. You know, rent a room in a in a rent a ballroom in a hotel or something like that, uh, or a, uh-huh. a clubhouse or something like that, and go ahead and do that. We're not going to say anything. We're not going to raid that. Um, and for a lot of the other things in China, these, especially these folk religious practices, a lot of which had been condemned as superstitious, um, they are now considered to be just culture. And so a lot of this mm. has been redefined as culture. Um, and, and I think this actually is a sign of flexibility by the government because they've allowed this um, to be done, uh, sort of, again, turning a blind eye, but it doesn't maybe give them the same rights um, as other groups, but it, um, it, it, so a lot of these things, for example, worshiping um, various folk deities or, or, or mountains and holy mountains, uh, pilgrimages, a lot of these things were discouraged in the past, and now the government has uh, actually supported a lot of this um, mm. under the guise of culture. But the other groups are just not, they just don't really care, uh, and, and they just turn a blind eye to it. Right. Uh, Ian, in, so, uh, in, in your travels around China, uh, didn't you personally get involved with some spiritual groups or spiritual practices, uh, and what was that like, and did it, it endanger your status in the country? By participating in any of those? Um, no, I mean, well, I guess what I did, I went to some churches and and, and so on and so forth, and I, I wrote about that. Uh, the thing I probably spent the most time doing was learning a kind of meditation um, called, in, a Taoist meditation called internal alchemy, mm-hmm. uh, or nei dan, so where, where you try to um, well, you sit cross-legged. You there's a, a, a book that was uh, translated. It's called The Secret of the Golden Flower, and mm. it was translated in the um, early 20th century by this German missionary who essentially went native, you know, Richard uh. Wilhelm. And Richard Wilhelm also translated the I Ching. You can find his translations of the Golden Flower and the I Ching. I think a lot of them now are online as PDFs because they're essentially in the public domain. And Wilhelm translated the Golden Flower, and uh, Jung, uh, Carl Jung, the great psychoanalyst, he wrote the introduction to the book. Uh, mm. He saw in this a kind of inward focus, similar to psychoanalysis. Uh, and so, uh, I, you know, I learned that with a Chinese group that was doing that, doing that in Beijing. We went off to retreats um, for ten days, living in these caves in southern China. Um, but this is not really risky anymore. This kind of thing would have been, this is an example of what would have been condemned a decade ago or, or more as superstitious. Mm. But now the government thinks if this provides some kind of spiritual ballast for people, some kind of a foundation to their lives, gives some meaning to their lives, then let them go ahead and do it. It's not challenging party rule, um, so it's okay. Um, that's been a huge change, I think, in religious life here. Interesting. Uh, Ian, I'm really curious about the um, intersection of China and India, and because um, uh, I've, I've written about how Indian spiritual traditions 
uh, came here to America and the proximity of India to China uh, makes that, uh, you know, a different matter. But the, the tension between them also is different. So have the uh, kind of yogic uh, traditions that have had such a big effect on America, like contemporary yoga and some of the uh, uh, famous gurus, uh, have they penetrated China at all? Um, there is, um, yoga is now practiced in China, in big Chinese cities among sort of upwardly mobile people who have maybe traveled a bit. Mm -hmm. um, one of the favorite parks that I uh, walk around, they have a yoga studio in it now. Really? And a friend of mine opened a place uh, oh, a while ago called the Yoga Yard, and it catered it is quite tellingly early on it catered i guess you know 80 90 to foreigners expats and now it's probably flipped and it's probably well it is majority chinese people who are interested in that um but i think probably a lot of china there's a lot of china's own indigenous um yogic type practices yeah. like sort of meditation or qigong or qigong tai, and yeah tai chi yeah. style practices so uh those are making a huge comeback and i think that's probably where most people's focus is in inside china uh from here what other uh, what uh, new areas or same areas of focus uh will you be uh, on to uh in the in the coming months in the coming year well, a, a big topic that interests me, I'm writing an essay, I just wrote an essay now on a new book that came out by um, David Palmer and Elijah Siegler on Taoism's uh, spread to the West, mm. and this is a book called Dream Trippers, and uh, it focuses on two, two groups of people who are interested in Taoism in the West, um, some people who maybe considered more new agey and some people who imagine themselves to be more quote unquote authentic and how they interact with each other and their different approaches to Taoism. Uh, so that's an essay I just wrote for the New York Review of Books that I hope will be out in the next uh, mm -hmm. month or two. And I guess longer term, uh, I'm, I want to write a book on Chinese medicine. Uh, I think there's, mm -hmm. there's probably a need for a, a single volume introduction to what Chinese medicine uh, is today in, inside China uh, and, and also how it spread to the West and in its strange history in the 20th century. It was a lot like Chinese religion where a lot of it was mm. condemned as superstitious and backwards in China in the early 20th century and then somehow survived and was um, actually adopted by the communists as somewhat efficacious and uh, spread and, and uh, it's still, I think, somewhat misunderstood because in the West, we have, uh, you know, we, we, we look at Chinese medicine in a different way. I think in the West, probably at least half of Chinese medicine is acupuncture, if not more. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in China, it's overwhelmingly herbal medicine with acupuncture being yeah. Yeah. just a yeah. smaller component. And so I, I, vaguely, I want to write a book about that, but I have to sort of figure a way to frame it and, and organize mm -hmm. it. Well, I would encourage you. My wife is a doctor of Chinese medicine, and when she was being trained, she, she went to China, and most of the focus there was, in fact, um, herbal uh, instructions about herbs and that sort of thing, as I recall. Um, but yeah, that's a fascinating history. I hope I hope uh, to look into it. And and in in your uh, in the book about Taoist. Taoism here, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, a, there's a lot of Alan Watts. I would think. 
Mm-hmm. Ellen yeah. once played a big role in uh, in translating things. Um, but it, I think that the interesting thing about Taoism, say, when, when you were mentioning, for example, yoga, um, Buddhism, there were many practitioners uh, who came over to the United States and to Western countries, many Indians and others who brought the religion and, and its practices over. Taoism it's interesting that it was primarily this sort of intellectual exercise. Yeah. People like Richard Wilhelm and others who translated these works, it came over via scholars. And so we have a somewhat warped idea um, that there's, you know, two kinds of Taoism, there's religious Taoism and there's philosophical Taoism. Um, and I think it sort of reflects the prejudices of the Western scholars and their Confucian interlocutors back in China who, who informed them about Taoism. Um, that you know, a lot of Taoism is just superstitious nonsense and so on and so forth. And so you still, you still get a lot of that in, in writings and descriptions of Taoism. Um, I think that's uh, it's an interesting, yeah, a very interesting topic. So yeah. I cover a little bit of that in the essay, the review of that book. I highly recommend that book. Um, it's co- just come out by University of Chicago Press, and uh, very, very interesting, very readable, accessible book. Uh, Ian, uh, thank, thank you so very much for your time. Phil, do you have any final questions yes, you'd like I, to ask? I do. I, I want to get back to uh, Ian's book, The Souls of China. I, I have two questions. One is, uh, I was struck by the plural use of souls right. in the title, and I, I want to know why you chose that it's as a, an author who who uh, labors over choice of titles. I'm sure it was uh, well-considered. Um, but and also um, in the uh, material for your book, uh, it talk, you're talking about how this uh, return of religion after Mao, as your subtitle has it, um, is shaping soul of China. And I'm curious about what you mean by that, and and the effect uh, that this religious um, sort of liberalization is having on the the culture, the mm-hmm. politics of China. Yeah, well, the choice of the plural um, was because I, I'm not trying to be a reductionist where I come ha- come and identify here is the soul, the dark yeah, heart yeah. of China. <laughs> you know, mm. I think it's a little too arrogant to, to think that one can figure that out. But I, I do think there are multiple. Also, it's a big country with, uh, and, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of people. And there are, there are multiple uh, dreams and aspirations and souls, uh, many different beliefs beliefs in China. So I tried to just get, uh, take a stab at, 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 uh, at looking at those, at it like that. So I didn't try to, you know, I don't think I have the answer to, to what China is, but there are some effects uh, to your second question. I think it's, it's reflects a uh, searching for a sense of community among people. Uh, and in many ways, things that I found similar to our own countries, that this idea that um, society is, become overwhelmingly dominated by economic issues, economic benchmarks, that everything in society is defined by how much you're worth or what the monetary value of an exercise is or a product is. Uh, And maybe because China has such a hyper-developed form of capitalism where it really is, you know, money uber alice in China, that this, that it's pushed people to really search for alternative answers, uh, just and, and again, despite the somewhat repressive politics in China, uh, the government's role in repressing religion, 
uh, people are still pushing and searching. And so I think it makes China part of this global conversation about how to organize societies that have more meaning in life, that gives more dignity to people. Um, I can't say that this search has radically transformed China and that it's become a humanistic superpower or something. But I think it it it, it is pushing people into more uh, to be more active in charities. Um, and there, you know, there's, there's Taiwan, which is the island just across from China. It, it has it is kind of a soft power superpower. It has numerous Buddhist charities and organizations that are active around the world. And I would expect in the future that we'll see similar things coming from mainland China, where we'll see more Chinese people active in spiritual practices. I mean, one interesting thing, for example, despite all the hostility between India and China, the number of Chinese people who go back to India because they want to look for the roots of Buddhism. And they go oh, back with a, a deep respect for Indian people. I've met many people who went with, you know, real prejudices against India because Chinese often will look down on India and say, oh, yeah. it's backwards, it's dirty, it's this and that. Um, and they come back and say, well, that's a country where spiritualism is really strong and we can learn so much from that. So I think those kind of person-to-person interactions are, are quite different and quite quite interesting and, and can slowly soften a society and take off some of the hard edges that you find when you're in China. Um, so it's a slow process. It's not like uh, the Catholic Church in communist-era Poland or the Protestant Church in communist-era East Germany, and we're going to, because of religion, have an anti-communist revolution or something like right. that. I mean, right. it's not going to have any direct political impact like that, I think, especially also because the government's trying to co-opt some of these groups. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, on a, on a deeper level, it helps change the uh, the way the country acts and behaves, the way people interact with each other. Right. Uh, Ian, and I, 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 actually, I, would, I actually have one ahead, last yeah. question, and, and that is, uh, from what you were saying, in in the states now, in the United States, there are a lot of people, and in Europe, that consider themselves spiritual but not religious. Uh, right, right. Are there people that think like that in China? I'm a spiritual person, but not interested in any real religion or organized religion. And I think that's exactly the case in China, because I use the word religion in the title very loosely. The word religion in China, Zongjiao, is a very contentious term. As I said, it's a, it's a new term that was imported to China to describe this practice. Um, but many people feel that it's sort of uh, maybe very political, uh, and they're not that comfortable using that term. Instead, they use the term faith or belief. And I think a lot of people, and that is very much like the spiritual thing. So if you ask people, are you a Buddhist in that sense, and they use the word, say, Buddhist religion in Chinese, uh, they may think that you mean, am I a formal lay member of the local temple, sort of registered with the temple as a lay member, with an ID book as a lay member? And they'll say, no, I'm not. But that, but if you ask people what they do, uh, they say, "Well, I, I, of course, yeah, I go to the temple all the time, and I pray, and I do this and that." That's much more. That's much more telling. Is ask people what they actually do rather than what label they give themselves, because the practice is really, I think, what matters and uh-huh. what is defining. Uh, that's interesting. So, uh, very uh, parallel to uh, developments here in the U.S. and in Europe. Yeah. Thank. Well, that that uh, that is. It's fascinating. Uh, uh, Dennis, that uh, question you asked is the one I was going to ask. And um, uh-huh. I know we know Ian has uh, another commitment, so we should 
wind this up and thank Ian, Ian thank uh, you. For, thank no, you so it's much. my pleasure. And again, this is uh, a great conversation. Thank you yeah, very much. Yeah, the, Ian's latest book, The Souls of China, The Return of Religion After Mao. Thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time. Okay.